Well, let's turn this morning to Matthew chapter 19, and we're only using this as a springboard this morning for this wonderful series that we are seeing come out of our study of the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying Ephesians for the last few months here, and uh, we are at the end of chapter 5, getting ready to go into chapter 6. Uh, the book of Ephesians really could be subtitled The Storehouse of God's Grace. It's the riches of His grace displayed in Jesus Christ. So if you ever need an encouragement in your walk with the Lord, take a few minutes and read through the book of Ephesians. It is a small book, only six chapters, but it is just encouraging to the believer in the Lord of our place that we have in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is on our, the riches of our redemption. Uh, chapter 2 is the reason for our redemption, and chapter 3 is the relationship of that redemption. And so we are great sinners, as we like to say here, but Jesus is a greater Savior. And isn't that all of our hope this morning? We are great sinners. He's a greater Savior. But then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the responsibility of our redemption. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins by calling us to saying, walk worthy in the manner by which you've been called. In other words, if we're going to heaven, we should live like it. What we believe should determine how we behave. The world is incredibly sold out to his sin. The issue for us is, are we more sold out to our Savior than the world is to our sin? They are unapologetic for, for the beliefs and the trends and the fads and the different things that they give themselves to. I understand that. I get that. But the thing is, why do Christians constantly have to apologize for being bold in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? We should not stutter in the time that we live. We should speak clearly and boldly about the gospel, shouldn't we? We should speak forthrightly, lovingly to our neighbor, but we should speak the truth in love. And so this morning, as we come to the end of Ephesians 5, and we've been looking at this issue of family, this issue of fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, and it's based on a creation ordinance that God made male and female in His image. I know that our society is going through a tremendous crisis on sexual identity, on their maleness and femaleness, but God has created us both in His image. And so, therefore, there's no confusion biblically as to our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to talk about the gospel, we must talk about biblical concept of marriage. Marriage is not for any two entities that claim that they are in love with each other, any two of his creatures. It is one man, one woman under the bond of marriage by which we are to live our lives. Again, the Supreme Court, though they have tried to redefine what marriage is, they have no legal or spiritual authority to do so. You cannot reverse a creation ordinance just because 3% of the population has effective lobbyists and they are fearful of having political courage to do and say the right thing. We must, if we're going to talk about the gospel, talk about biblical families, biblical homes. And the reason why is at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, that he speaks of the mystery between Christ and the church, and he's using the wonderful mystery of the woman and the man in marriage to describe his love and care for his people. You can't find that in a same-sex marital relationship. Now, as I say that, I want to be clear this morning. The gay community is not our enemy, but they are our mission field. I have several gay friends in this community, and though they are bold about their homosexual rights and so forth, I want to lovingly step into that community and share with them the transformative powers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to do so. Here's a little additive that we try to live by here at this church, and it's this. Truth will always invite scrutiny, but error seldom wants to be challenged. Truth will always invite scrutiny, but error seldom wants to be challenged. And so when you see people in culture being defensive about what they believe or not wanting to engage in conversation, 
coming from the Chicago area, there was a local talk show host there named Irv Cups in it. And it was interesting that the Cup show, as we'd referred to it, he would engage people in the lively art of conversation. This was his byline. I love to do that around town. It's Starbucks, which we affectionately call St. Arbucks here, uh, in different places of recreation, whether you're at the beach or whatever. I love meeting people. I love talking about their world and their life and their story. I love seeing the worldview by which they see all of life. And as a Christian, it's exciting then not just to give a verse or two on the gospel and walk away, but to develop friendships. We call it lifestyle evangelism. Life on life, walking with people. And it's wonderful to walk around town and to have friendships, mostly non-Christians, and even some from groups that maybe wouldn't feel welcome in a local church to talk to them about the truth claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we should speak clearly about those things. And in God's sovereignty and in our day and time, we see those things surrounding family. Again, when one of the justices who voted for same-sex marriage recently said that procreation and children are not necessary to help define family, that is a tremendous assault on the biblical model of who we are to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are mainstays, and the, Jer- and the prophet Jeremiah says, do not remove those old boundary stones. Live by them. We are to honor the 6,000-year heritage that we have biblically on these issues. This pulpit is not dedicated to politics, but any time a politician steps into our realm within the church, which encompasses the sanctity of life, the abortion issue, marriage and family and how that works, then we may speak from this pulpit and as Christians in the culture as salt and light to a dying world to represent God's standard for these things. So may I encourage you this morning, you have a voice, live out loud. Make sure that you are using that in society. The the most unloving thing you can do is to walk by people that desperately need the Savior and not engage them ultimately for the sake of the gospel. I hope you have a burden for lost people here this morning. I'm so grateful as I look back on my life, raised in a Christian family, raised in a wonderful church, but yet it took a young man when I was a junior in high school who had come off a bad LSD trip, never darkened the door of a church until two weeks later, his dad found him lying in a pool of blood. He tried to kill himself. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sought me out a week later and shared the gospel. And here I was the professional right? I was the one who was raised in the church. I was winning Bible memory verse contests, even though I wasn't saved. I knew so many of the hymns by heart and so forth. I was born in a Christian family and raised in a wonderful church. But as they say, being born in a garage doesn't make you any more a car than being born in a Christian family makes you a believer. You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And so I thank the Lord for him bringing this man, Pete, who became good friends in high school then at age 17, to introduce me to the truth claims of Christ. And after a basketball game one night, I played basketball for four years in high school. You'll have to receive that by faith this morning. If I don't look like the consummate athlete athlete with age, you know, things, they become atrophied naturally. Do you, you know what I'm saying here? And so here, it's, it's one, you don't have to agree so heartily, but yes, thank you. But here, after a basketball game, he came over to me and talked with me about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful that he did not assume, because I was born and raised in a Christian family in a church, that I was truly saved and born again. And so we have to realize that in our community as well, in our day and time as well. So here this morning, we are looking at this issue of family, this issue of marriage. And so last week we began, and this week we're going to finish it, on the issue of biblical divorce and remarriage. Is there such a thing? There are a lot of practical questions, and I hope this will encourage your hearts and minds in those things before the Lord. We're going to look at several passages here this morning. But I just want to direct your hearts and minds to one passage as we springboard into this issue. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says this in in verse 3. As you'll notice, the Pharisees were coming up to Him. They were testing Him. They were trying to trick Him. 
There were three main groups that controlled the religious context in, the, in Israel at that time. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and we could even add the Zealots. The two most famous are the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe really in marriage. They did not believe in angelic supernatural power. They did not believe in the resurrection. And as the old joke says, that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, because they didn't believe in those things. The Pharisees, though, there were 6,000 Pharisaical leaders at the time in Israel. They believed that a Pharisee should be married. The Apostle Paul, for example, his father is a, a Pharisee, and he was also a Pharisee. He was skilled. He had a Ph.D. in the Jewish law, and therefore he was a very gifted man, but yet he had to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The dictates of his religious properties were not sufficient to save him. He could not be moral enough and civil enough and good enough to obtain the perfect righteousness of God. That only happens, by the way, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It's not a matter of us doing good works to have God love us. It's a matter of him doing the perfect work through his son Jesus Christ on the cross and through his body bodily resurrection so that by faith we can be treated by God as if we lived Jesus' life even though on the cross he was treated as if he lived our life. So here's a wonderful hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He took our sin by faith. He gives us his perfect righteousness. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be born again. So the Pharisees, of which Paul was one, here were coming up to the Lord. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to always test him because they were outwitted by his divine omniscient authority and mind. So look here with me at Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Again, we're going to use this as a foundation this morning. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, just so you know that the Jewish people at that time, especially the men, could put away their wives, send them away, and we're going to see it in detail this morning for any reason. And so he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus answers their current cultural question with the creation ordinance. This is, by the way, taken out of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's not only demonstrative of the physical union, of the sexual relationship that man is given with his bride, with his wife in the context of marriage, but it's speaking of one flesh, one heart, one mind in God together. So they are no longer two but one two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Uh, that's only found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And again, we're going to look at that in detail this morning. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, by way of review this morning, here's the principle of doctrine that we are coming to this very controversial but necessary issue for us to deal with biblically. The principle of doctrine simply says this, the Word of God clearly teaches that though divorce is never commanded in Scripture, it is permitted under certain circumstances. There's our axiom this morning. Though divorce is never commanded, it is permitted. No matter what sin your spouse has done against you, that is not automatic justification to leave that spouse. It's not automatic justification to divorce. You don't have to. You can remain celibate. You can remain single, no matter what the issue may be. But under certain circumstances, it is permitted by God. Now, as we just read in Matthew 19, the Lord allowed this, and pardon me, Moses allowed this by God's direction for the hardness of their heart. This is not speaking of the hardness of the heart that's, that's struggling to forgive, maybe infidelity or abuse or abandonment. But this is the hardness of the heart of the one who continually sins against their spouse with impunity. 
It's speaking of a heart that is rock solid, immovable, crusted over, calloused against the things of the Lord. So maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you've been this individual. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of this kind of hardness where you want to heal your marriage, you want to go in humility, but the one that is maybe sinning against you, that is not repentant of their adultery, of their abandonment, of their abuse, has now come, and because of their hardness of heart, they are unwilling to repent. God, through Moses, allowed them to have a a certificate of divorcement. It was a theocratic meaning religious and a legal obligation, much like in our society. There's a civil court or a legal court that will grant a bill of divorcement. There's also a local church court that would give license to say this is not a biblical or it is a biblical divorce. And it's incumbent upon us as pastors and elders within the church to walk with people through these things to allow them to see there are biblical reasons for divorce and then there are non-biblical reasons. Last week we looked at a biblical divorce, three things, and I just want to mention these briefly here this morning. You'll see before you adultery. We saw that in Matthew 19 already. If a man puts his wife away except for sexual immorality, he's committing adultery by allowing that person to marry another. This is mirrored in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Mark chapter 10 verse 12. Matthew 19 gives the physical reason for the divorce, adulterous living, infidelity. Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 speaks more of the emotional or heart issue because we know as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if a man looks lustfully at a woman with the intent to have her, there's the adulterous view. It's not recognizing someone as a man as being handsome or as a woman as being beautiful. It's simply saying they have focused their heart and their emotions like a laser beam so much so that they fixated their thoughts on that individual to hopefully have an unfaithful relationship with them. Now, before marriage, the Bible calls this fornication. After marriage, the Bible calls this adultery. It is the same sin. And so Jesus is saying, if you fix your heart to do those things and that heart response is left unfettered, it will ultimately find expression. And we all have PhDs in rationalizing our behavior, don't we? So we don't need encouragement to justify waywardness, to justify sinfulness. It comes naturally to us. As I read of an evangelical leader several months ago who was unfaithful to his spouse, he said, well, I only had an affair because my wife had one first. Listen, that is no justification for your sinfulness. Your spouse's sin does not give you or I the right to act in a sinful way. We must, before the Lord, stay faithful to Him. Ezekiel 18 says that the, son, the sins of the Father do not belong to the Son, and the sins of the Son do not belong to the Father. What is he saying? The prophet is saying we all stand as individuals before a Creator God. And so therefore, however your spouse is acting does not give you the right to act in a way that is sinful against them out of a sense of hurt emotions, feeling empty, alone, untreasured, uncared for, unloved. No, we must stay the course, though your spouse, husband or wife, may act in a wrong manner. Adultery, that's, a, that's an obvious thing here. Again, divorce is not commanded under adultery, but it is permitted. That breaks the bond there. Now, two, abandonment. Abandonment. And let's look at this passage here briefly this morning. 1 Corinthians 7. Again, I, I, I apologize for a more uh, detailed review this week. But this is so very important in our discussion here this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's the only place in the New Testament that the Lord, through now the Apostle Paul in this context, mentions four groups of people, four groups that that we have in any church and really in any society. He mentions virgins, which are single people. 
He mentions widows who are those that were once married, but their spouse has died. He mentions the married people. They are in a marital context of husband and wife. And then he mentions a term only used four times in this particular chapter and only in this chapter, and he calls them the unmarried, the unmarried. And it's in this context that the Apostle Paul is addressing these various people groups in the city of Corinth in a very wicked place on how to live a life that is pleasing and honorable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, you'll notice here, like say in verse uh, 8 here this morning, to the unmarried and the widows, again, the unmarried means the divorced, the widow are those who were once married, but through death do not have a spouse. I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is identifying either as one who has been through the issue of divorce in his life or who has been widowed. Most commentators believe that the Apostle Paul went through a divorce because of his wife leaving due to issues of the faith. And then we also see this in verse uh, 11 here this morning, 11 or 12. But if she does, she should remain unmarried. This is saying the woman wants to leave. She wants to separate from her husband. By the way, when you see that word separate in Scripture, carizo, it means to divorce. It literally means the, the ripping of the flesh. And that's what divorce does to us, doesn't it? It rips a family. You were once two people. You've now come into this one flesh one spirit, one soul-mind union, and to separate, to divorce, it means to tear the flesh. Even if it's a biblical divorce, it's painful. It should hurt because it's separating, it's divorcing what God has brought together. So Paul says if a woman says, well, I'm just going to divorce my husband, if she does, she should remain unmarried, single, yet divorced, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. He's saying, don't let the sin compound itself. Don't let it compound itself. But now, look at with me here at verses uh, 12 to 15 this morning. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. He's not declaring that what he's saying is unbiblical. He's just not quoting Jesus at this point. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he should consent to live with her. She should not divorce him. In that culture, the gospel is taking root. It is spreading. Many families, most, did not know Jesus. The husband or the wife responds to Christ. They respond to saving faith. And then all of a sudden, someone is saying, you know what? My spouse doesn't want me to go to church. My spouse doesn't want me at prayer. They don't want me to participate in communion. They don't want me to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They don't want me to study the Bible together. And Paul says, listen, if you are married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever, if wants to leave, we'll see in a moment, they can, but the believer should not depart. The believer cannot say, well, I'm now a Christian, I'm married to a non-believer, wouldn't it be great if I had a believing wife or a believing husband? Well, the answer is yes, of course it'd be wonderful, but that's not biblical justification for leaving the non-believer. You stay in that family, you stay and honor the covenant relationship. Paul continues, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Uh, the Greek word there is the same thing for sanctified, set apart, hagiasmos. Hagias is the Greek word for holy. Hagiasmos is sanctified, to make holy. And so the process of sanctification, we are regenerated in salvation by God through Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, in faith and the gospel. We were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We were once dead in trespasses and sin, and now through faith in Jesus Christ, He has made us alive to Himself by believing the gospel. That's good news, isn't it? We no longer have eternal death, but eternal life. We are completely forgiven of past, present, and future sins on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Him as your Lord and Savior this morning, you can walk in the truth and the reality of that forgiveness. But we also know this, 
that as a believer in the Lord, that even though you might be married to a non-believer, even though your children may not have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, say you're a Christian wife and you're the only one who is saved in that household. Can I tell you, when it says that otherwise your husband would be deemed as unholy or your children is unholy, it doesn't mean unsaved. What he's talking about here is that God pours out his blessings of grace on that one saved individual, and the whole household is the recipient of the benefits of that grace. That's what it means. In other words, if they see you as a saved mom, a saved dad, or maybe you have unsaved parents and you're a teenager, you're a child, and you know Jesus Christ, your faith in the Lord, God showers His grace upon that entire household because He loves you as His child. And in doing so, the unsaved spouse or the unsaved children will look upon that and they are sanctified. That household receives the blessings and the grace of God through that believer in the Lord. And so therefore, you don't know if your unsaved husband or your unsaved children may not come to salvation in Jesus Christ. This is something that the apostle is dealing with here. The unbelieving partner can separate, but yet the believing husband, the believing wife, in the midst of unbelieving children, should not leave. Why? Because you don't know if they will not respond at some point to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, God is sovereign. If you're married to a non-Christian this morning, when was the last time that you thanked the Lord for your non-Christian spouse? If you're married this morning and you have unbelieving children, moms and dads, when was the last time as a Christian did you thank the Lord for your unbelieving children? God is sovereign. He has blessed you in the context of marriage. Remember this, marriage was a pre-fall mandate. Marriage was not given after sin entered this world to correct it. It was given as God's foreordained way to populate the earth and for Him to create families. That's how God would reveal Himself, and it's the main building block of society. It's a pre-fall creation ordinance institution. And therefore, at this church, and I believe I'm in the minority on this, from time to time, I will marry non-believers. And now they still have to go through premarital counseling. But marriage is an ordinance given for all people of all societies. It's good and right and true for them to honor the law of Scripture and the law of the land. Now through that premarital time, we begin in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 on the fall and how the battle of the sexes began and we walk through the duty of the husband and the wife and it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. But I want you to know some pastors, and I respectfully disagree with them, believe they should only marry believers. But yet you can use that marital ceremony in order to proclaim the gospel and to show as a testimony to these dear young men and women coming to the context of marriage, even if they don't know Jesus, to understand that the full orb expression of that is Christ's love for His bride in the church of which He gave Himself on the cross. It's a good thing, isn't it? So we want to call society to these wonderful truths in the Lord. Now here, look with me at verse 15, and here's the context for abandonment. But if the unbelieving partner or spouse separates, and again, the Greek word charizo for divorce is used there, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now this is very difficult if the unbelieving spouse wants to depart, and we only know the context of an unbeliever by how they live their lives. Now, if someone openly rejects the gospel, rejects Christ, throws away the truth of Scripture, that's a very obvious sign that someone doesn't know the Lord. But someone may come to church. Someone may have been raised in the church like I was. Someone may go to a nice 
Baptist or Presbyterian or mainline church, and they espouse the things of the Lord. They may just be Easter and Christmas Christians, as you know. They're holiday believers. And they may be a crino, a Christian in name only. I've adopted that. A crino, a Christian in name only. But yet they feel that they love Jesus, but their life isn't any different. The only way that we can see what's in the heart is to see how it's lived in the life. And if someone in your family is leaving you, if someone is a professing believer in Jesus Christ, but yet is lived in adultery, is lived in abandonment, is lived in abuse, they're justifying it somehow because they're not happy. And the, the mode of this generation, folks, is how can God use me if I'm not happy? That is an actual lie from Satan himself. The issue is not our happiness. The issue is our holiness before a Creator God. And so the situation that we have to look at is not what's convenient, but what's covenant. Not what's convenient, but what's covenant. And so here, if someone even espouses to be a Christian, but they have pursued a life of rebellion and lasciviousness and infidelity and corruption against the Lord Jesus Christ and against their family and against their spouse, if that individual abandons them for the sake of their sin, they've coveted not the things of the Lord, they've hold dear in their heart not the things of the gospel, but only their own pleasure and passion and pride. If that's the case, and if they fail to repent, then you must let them go. If they want to go, let them go, because they first have abandoned the Lord, and secondly, they have abandoned their duty to you within the family. The sin of abandonment is very profound. If the unbeliever separates, Carrizo wants to divorce, it's a command. Let it be so. Let it be so. It's a command of Scripture. You cannot be a spiritual Gumby, bending yourself and bending over in every way, shape, or form, backwards or forwards or sideways, to accommodate, thinking if I can just simply do whatever they ask me to do, they'll stay, they'll be with me, they'll love me again. It'll be a way that I can woo them back. Don't buy into the cultural lie. You live for the Lord Jesus Christ. If they stay, embrace them. But you cannot duct tape them to a chair and say, follow the Lord, do what's right, honor your family, love your kids, love your wife, honor your husband. They must do that as an act of their will that has been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they're unrepentant and choose a life of rebellion, you must let them go. What is the fruit of that? The Apostle Paul is clear. In that context, the brother or sister in Christ is not bound. They are not enslaved. The covenant has been destroyed. That's abandonment. That's abandonment. God has called you to peace. That's abandonment. You might say, brother, I'm in the same home as a, as a woman or a man that is treating me terribly. They're taking on the characteristics of an unbeliever. They don't want to do what's right in the gospel. Um, you know, you pray for them. You love them. You encourage them. Husbands, if you have an unbelieving spouse, serve them, care for them, nurture them. Wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, let the as 1 Peter 3 would say, let your conduct be so evident before them that you may win them by just the lifestyle that you portray before them. Let them see a godly man or a godly woman committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to the gospel. But if they want to depart, let them go. Let them go. They are, you have no longer a duty to the covenant of marriage. Thirdly, we saw a biblical reason for divorce, adultery, abandonment, and then also an issue of abuse. And this could be really in the context even of abandonment. I have met more women in my 40 years of ministry that have said that they received some unfortunate teaching from different uh, seminar leaders or itinerant ministers or speakers that have said, well, just trust the Lord if your husband is hitting you or the statistics are equal. If you're a husband and your wife is hitting you, strangely enough, it's equal between men and women. That if you're being abused physically and even 
being uh, emotionally or verbally abused, and, and I don't mean frustrated, but they're saying the most vulgar and demeaning things to you, cutting you down, just causing you to be emotionally scarred, that here this abuse, and this is a big word, so we should not treat it lightly. I had a, a, a woman a few years ago come into the church. They didn't go to church here. Her and her husband came in, and she, he, she said, he's abusing me. And I said, well, let's unpack this a little bit. I said, sir, have you been hitting your spouse? And he says, I've never laid a hand on her. I said, ma'am, is that true? And she said, yes. She goes, but he emotionally abuses me. I said, sir, do you emotionally abuse your, your spouse? And he says, no, I don't. I said, ma'am, describe the emotional abuse. And she said, well, we disagree at the dinner table. We end up having an argument. Isn't that abuse? No, it's not. That's not abuse. That is the nature of human relationship. We all disagree sometimes, don't we? We all can see different sides of the soup can and not have the same view on things. That's not abuse. That's just conversation. That's disagreement. Abusive language would be that which comes against someone in the most vulgar and vitriolic ways to destroy their character, to un undermine their personhood, to constantly, vigorously, with anger, demean them and bring them to a place to just to grind them down to powder where you have nothing left to show of any godly action towards that individual. That's where it goes to abuse. That's where it goes to abuse. So this is a big word. We shouldn't minimize it, and we shouldn't cheapen it. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.18 that women are to submit to their husbands as which is befitting in the Lord. Ladies, if your husbands ask you to do something immoral, unethical, or illegal, you must not submit to them. You do not have to be a doormat or a punching bag for your husbands. That is unbiblical. You must, they must honor you as Christ loved the church and honored her. And so here you are not meant to submit in all situations. When the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit in every aspect, in everything to your husbands, it means this, in every aspect of life, not in every single directive from your husband, in every single situation, but in all kinds of situations, Paul means that you function as a couple in community. You are to honor and respect your husband. Husbands, you are to love and to serve your wives. And again, that is not something we can demand each other of spouses. The husband cannot say to the wife, submit, you're not honoring me, obey me. That is not what Scripture means. The woman graciously out of her heart in love for the Lord graciously honors and respects and submits to her husband. That's not something the man can demand. And ladies, it's not something that you could demand. Husband, you must love me as Christ loved the church. You're not doing it this week. This is something that the husband gives to you, ladies, as a wonderful gift of grace, as a wonderful thing, saying, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to present you as a bride who is faultless and spotless, and Christ sanctifies the church. The husbands are to be involved in nurturing and caring and seeing their wives purified by the Word, servant leaders within the home. These are gifts that cannot be demanded, but they must be honored. So husbands... 1 Peter 3, live with your wives in an understanding way. Treat them as the weaker vessel. And again, that's not a chauvinistic term. That doesn't mean weak emotionally, weak spiritually, weak intellectually. It simply is referring that most ladies are weaker physically than the man is. And therefore, the man is not to intimidate their spouses physically. They are not to abuse their wives. They are to live with them in an understanding way. Men, if we don't, says your prayers will be hindered. And therefore, he says, treat your wives with the kind of love and care that Jesus treats the church. And in doing so, Peter calls marriage the grace of life. It's not the ball and chain of life. It's not the drudgery of life. It is not the elbow of life. It is not the friction and sandpaper and frustration of life. Listen, marriage is God's grace to us as people. And so here, adultery abandonment, or abuse. Those are the three reasons for divorce. Now, since divorce is only a concession to man's sin, again, the hardness of the heart, and is not part of God's original plan for marriage, 
all believers should hate divorce as God hates it, right? Malachi, I hate divorce, says the Lord, even though God gave Israel a bill of divorcement because of their unfaithfulness of idolatry against him. So here's the family, male and female, children in the home under God's grace, the wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ and as Christ submitted to his Father's will, the husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, a selfless act of worship within the home. Secondly, last week, we saw biblical remarriage. After death, death breaks the bond of the covenant of marriage. You are free to marry. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, the younger widows under the age of 60, he would encourage to marry. So their hearts are not strayed after other things. You can marry. My mom, Ruth, went home to be with the Lord a few months ago. She is 96 years old. Uh, when my father went home to be with the Lord, I was 17. I was holding my dad when he died. My mom was 55 years old, and it was very interesting because we were wanting to know if my mom was going to remarry. She had men, it was odd, but she had men even in the church that we grew up in ask her out, and she would be horrified at this. And she said, you know, Steve, I've been married. I've had my husband. Now the rest of my days will be lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good thing, isn't it? She had her husband. She was faithful. She had the right to remarry. Being a widow breaks the marriage bond. She's free. She's no longer under that covenant. And again, after divorce, the second reason, biblical remarriage. If your spouse has committed infidelity, adultery, has abandoned you as the non-believer in the family, hasn't responded to the grace of church restoration and of people coming through with them, and maybe they've been involved in abusing their spouse, again, with hardness of heart, with impunity, then you have a biblical divorce. Again, it's not commanded. It is permitted. And if you have a biblical divorce, then you may pursue a biblical Remarriage. God gives grace. God gives grace. One thing, just as a footnote to say here, I know some pastors teach that even if you have a reason to biblically divorce, there's no reason to remarry. And that's just contrary to the truth of Scripture. Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he's giving instruction to the unmarried, the married, the single, and the widowed. And here, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, if you are to marry, marry only in the Lord. That's the only prerequisite for godly Christian marriage. It's not issue of race. You must come as a man or a woman, even if it's a multiracial context. But the only non-negotiable is both people must know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior as you remarry, okay? So there it is. I hope this is clear. Death breaks the bond, a biblical divorce. Uh, you no longer have a duty to that covenant. And under the guise of the local church, you may pursue marriage. Now, the remaining part of our time here this morning, by the way, that's all introduction here this morning. I'm talking as quickly as I can. Those of you who are visiting with us, I apologize. Uh, only tongue-in-cheek here. Because uh, usually, uh, you know, the sermons don't go over an hour. It won't this morning. But I do want you to know that by way of introduction, the third thing this morning is a key issue, and I've had some call on it this last week. Number three this morning, biblical remarriage to a previous spouse. Biblical remarriage to a previous spouse. Is this law? Is there a loophole? Is this license to do so? Is this based on real love? Law, loophole, license, or love? And to understand this more fully, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24? Deuteronomy chapter 24. You may not have ever seen this section of Scripture before. This is a legal section. By the way, this is the only instruction in the entire Pentateuch, in the entire Old Testament, on divorce. This is the only Old Testament instruction on divorce. You'll recognize some terminology that the Pharisees were taking out of context to throw at Jesus. But you'll see this. Jeremiah, pardon me, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 to 4. Let's just read them first and then we'll explain them together. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies and by inference she becomes a widow, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, this is a complicated text, and I don't want to spend a lengthy amount of time on it, but I want you to understand the context because divorce and remarriage are multiple these days. I met a gal the other night at one of the Starbucks locally here. I was the only one in there, and I got to meet her and talk with her, and she's a single mom. She has teenage kids. She's a wonderful person, and she's been through a, a few divorces, and it's been a heartbreak for her. I meet this in several contexts. It's not uncommon even in the Hollywood context. Um, I think Elizabeth Taylor had went through seven or eight divorces and consummate remarriages. It's a huge issue in our society. I would not say to take your cue from the Hollywood elite because most of them don't consider marriage a covenant any more than they do a contract. They think they look at it as just an advanced form of dating, right? as opposed to something of real commitment together under God. But here, multiple marriages are not uncommon. By the way, second divorces, um, the divorce rate jumps dramatically. On a second marriage, on a remarriage, the divorce rate, if not grounded in the Lord, averages to be 74%. If you go to a third marriage or, or a fourth marriage, it goes dramatically above 80, 85, close to 90%. The baggage you carry forward into another family, another home, it's not insurmountable, but it is something you must know and guard against. So let's begin at verse 4, because we'll go in reverse here a bit here this morning. Notice in verse 4, the Lord says, through Moses, you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you an inheritance for. Notice this, that phrase, sin upon the land. He puts this in Old Covenant context. This is speaking of Israel, Judah. And God had set them apart as a nation, not because they were the most handsome, the most well-numbered, the most faithful. God simply out of His sovereign grace and free will extended His love and grace and mercy to them. But this is something where multiple divorces for any reason was going to bring a sin or a defilement upon the land. This was prohibited biblically. Moses is writing here so that divorce was not treated as a light-hearted thing, a weak thing. It had to be treated as something very important. So at the end here, God's ethical ideal was His creation ordinance found in Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24. So therefore, this law was a concession again to the hardness of their hearts and it was to preserve a minimum level of civility under the leadership of Israel, under a theocracy where religion was the governmental rule of the state. Now, as we go back to verse 1 here, in Deuteronomy 24, and this is where the Pharisees in Matthew 19 are quoting from, this is also what the Lord refers to. Notice here in verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Let's stop there for a moment. That, that word indecency, that word indecency, it means something of shame. Something of shame. Uh, shameful exposure. It's causing the behavior to be deemed as something less than, less than moral or civil. He's using something here that cannot be defended. Something that is exposed 
when people say sometimes, well, I stand naked before God, they might use that in colloquial language from the Puritan era. What they mean is, is God sees through all of our pretentiousness, all of our masks, all of the posing that we do. We stand completely exposed, as it were, spiritually before Him. Well, this is the word for indecency. It means that the husband has found some indecency within the spouse that brings shame, exposes her, as it were, as being openly naked before him. There's a shameful act, in other words. Now, this didn't need to be adultery because, as you know, adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by what? Death, by stoning. So this was something less than adultery, but as the, as the Jewish people added their own ordinances to God's Word, they made it for any reason, especially the husbands. It didn't have to be something of a sinful indecency or shameful act. It could be something that she, he didn't like how she literally prepared the meals or how she kept the house, or maybe he wasn't pleased with the child that she gave birth to. Um, all kinds of things that were shameful things in the husband's eyes to basically say, you know what, I'm tired of living with this kind of inconsistency in this woman, um, this little uh, kind of peccadillo that I perceive in my wife, and therefore I'm unhappy, the grass is greener, I get to send her away, it's got to be legal, a certificate of divorcement, but yet I'm going to put her away, I'm going to send her away. That's what divorce means. It not only means to rip the bond, it means to send away, just leave the home, leave the benefits of this home. Now, in the Jewish context, there was a financial component. When the woman was betrothed, as Mary was to Joseph, that betrothment or engagement period was just as binding in the Jewish culture as the actual ceremony and the bond of marriage. So when you were in a, an official family public betrothment, this issue affected the same. The man was to receive a dowry that the family had prepared, the father of the woman, and that dowry, usually of goods and money, was given to that man of saying, I'm giving you this woman's dowry, and it will be given to you. Sometimes the husband said, great, I received the dowry. I've had it with her. There's no real love. I did it for financial reasons. I sent her away. Now I'm going to marry again and get another dowry, and so forth. It was a way to financially kind of pad the till and that's not what Moses is, is encouraging. He's trying to prohibit. So there's a cultural and a biblical distinctive here. The law forbids the first husband, according here to verse 4, to actually take back the previous spouse that he might have been married to but has gone on and married or even become a widow after divorcing his wife and sending her away. The same thing with that woman. Doesn't your heart go out to this gal here? She's been divorced by her husband. He's declared there's some indecent thing in here. She marries another. That man finds her indecent or is widowed. And now that first husband wants to get back with the first wife that he put away. Moses says that is not profitable for you. Why? It compounds the reasons here. Think it through also for a moment. If a man divorces except for the cause of immorality, it's adulterous. It's adulterous. So if a man puts away his wife, even in the old covenant, for some sort of frivolous or even more profound shamefulness or indecent act, and that man puts that woman away, then you have a situation where if she marries another, that is committing adultery, isn't it? Because it was not for God-honoring reasons. So what we have here, and let's look at it, in verse 2, he writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. So there's been an official proclamation of divorce. There's been a certificate given. It's a legal binding document. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. If the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, the former husband sent her away, may not take her again. Why? He is compounding the indecency. He, in effect, is committing an indecent act of, first of all, offending his bride for some act that was non 
a non-issue of infidelity, but yet now when he takes her back, there would be infidelity by the very nature of that union. So Moses is saying, don't defile the land. Don't let the sin compound itself. Now in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, we read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, if a wife separates from her husband, okay, that's not a good thing. Don't divorce him. You don't have biblical grounds. But if you do, you must remain single or be reconciled to your husband. You don't compound the sin. You don't further defile the family. You don't further put that corruption on another. You can leave. You don't have biblical grounds, but the prohibitive, stay single. It's a protection. Stay celibate. You've done the wrong thing. Now either stay in that condition or repent and go back and be reconciled with your husband and the husband with the wife, the same thing. So here we see a great example of this in John chapter 4, don't we? Of the woman at the well. Remember this Samaritan woman? There is a racial issue there between Jew and Samaritan. And we see that she comes out at high noon and she's going to the well and Jesus tells his disciples that he must have needs to go through Samaria. There was a reason for him to go through that land of Samaria as a Jew and it was to minister to this one woman. I love this story. And here this woman comes and Jesus is approaching her from afar off. She's approaching the well. And the inference in Scripture is he must have some hidden sinful reason for approaching this Samaritan woman who was known as being wayward. She had several husbands at home plus a paramour, pardon me, several former husbands and a paramour that she was now sleeping with. The Lord told her everything about her. But yet she came to know Him as Messiah, as Lord and Savior of her life. And the Lord used that adulterous woman to go back in and turn that city upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the story of this? No matter what you've done and who you've done it with, the Lord, if you come to Him, He'll receive you for exactly where your life is. You don't have to become more moral or more holy or more civil to enjoy His favor. You come, repent of your sin. Just like Jesus told that adulterous woman, He said, your accusers are no longer here, but He said, go and sin no more. There comes a place, no matter how many marriages you've been through, no matter even if it was for unbiblical reasons, if you come to Christ today, His grace will forgive you. He will restore you, and that's good news, isn't it? For any of us, He accepts us in that. So here's the, here's the reasoning. Moses is, is saying there's some indecency, but yet if it's not ordered through death, the first husband is forbidden in remarrying her. The law protects that woman from the exploitation of her first husband, and that's the point. Now, the question is, is this something in our day that is prohibited. In principle, yes. But practically, we could say that the Lord, through His grace, the old covenant adultery is punishable by death. In the new covenant, that is not the case. In the Old Testament, the adulterous act had to be a physical consummation. In the New Testament, there can even be adultery through the desire that is unholy and unprofitable. Because God shows grace to the adulterer by not having them stoned in today's uh, age of grace, if you please, it still means, though, that that marital bond could be broken and that spouse could pursue a biblical divorce. They do not have to. It's not commanded. It is permitted. But yet, if there's been infidelity to the point where that person would be taking on the characteristics or deemed as a non-believer and it's without repentance, the hardness of heart, Moses is allowed for that. Abuse, he's allowed for that. But yet here in this context, if you've been married before and you've put your wife away or your husband away and then you've each married someone else and then those spouses maybe have been divorced again and then there has been a death of the spouse and you're widowed and maybe you see that first spouse years later and you fall in love again and desire to be married, the New Testament biblical pattern would be this. Have you repented 
of the first sins, if it was an unbiblical divorce? Have you done everything you can to reconcile and seek forgiveness by the one that you have harmed? And then if God in His providence has led you back to that previous spouse, you may enjoy the covenant of marriage, but yet repentance and reconciliation is always preferred. God will receive you where you are, but at the same time, you must honor Him with your life. So you see, principally, in the Old Testament, it was a protection from exploiting the wife by multiple divorces and then going back to someone that you've declared as being indecent. There must be in the New Covenant a seeking of repentance, a going to the families and humbling yourself and seeking forgiveness. There must be complete repentance, restoration, reconciliation spiritually before there could ever enjoy the bonds of matrimony again. Does that make sense to you all? Are we on the same page with that? These are complicated issues. They are not simple by any means. So this morning, beloved, when we see Jesus giving these commands and the Pharisees were trying to test Christ and exploit Him, He comes back with grace in their lives. In in Jeremiah chapter 3 in verse 1, I just want to conclude with this here this morning. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 1. Again, the prophets of the Old Testament had much to say on these issues. In Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 1, it says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights And see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat waiting lovers like an Arab on the wilderness. You have polluted the land, and therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, and you have the the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. See, what is the Lord saying there? Strong words from the prophet Jeremiah. He's saying that especially Jeremiah 3.3, you have on your forehead this shame of harlotry. And we could take this even to spiritual harlotry, abandoning the things of God. And he says, you refuse to be ashamed. Literally in the Hebrew, it means you've lost the ability to blush over your sin. There's no shame. There's no blush. There's no guilt associated with the behavior. And as Jeremiah, similar to Moses, is writing here that the one should not pollute the land. The showers have been withheld. In other words, there's no fruitfulness. There's no blessing. There's no bounty. There's no spring rain that brings forth the rebutting of the land and the flowers and the foliage again. You've played the horror. You've played the harlot. But yet, even in this, there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the New Testament reality of this? Go with me to James chapter 4, and we'll close with this verse this morning. James chapter 4. Oh, I love this. Dr. James is addressing people in the early stages of the church that had spiritual hardening of the arteries. They were on verge of a stroke. And James says in James 4.4, he says, you adulterous people. See, again, he's using the infidelity of the unions physically within marriage to a spiritual truth. You adulterous people. The King James, I believe, says you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Huge language. Huge language. Friendship with the world? Does your heart belong to the idolatrous notions of the society you live in? Have you committed spiritual adultery and abandoned the things of Christ for the sake of this world? Friendship with the world? He's not talking about having unsafe friends. He said that's enmity to God. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that's the world system, the world, the flesh, and the devil makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it says to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
God is a jealous God for his people, just like a husband should be jealous for his wife as his wife is giving her, giving her looks and attention and her affections to another. It's the right kind of jealousy out of the fidelity of love that he should battle for that woman, that he should drive off the ravenous wolves that want to come into the house and steal away your bride. The Lord is a jealous God for his people. And he says, but he gives more grace, and therefore says, God opposes the proud, but here it is, he gives grace to who? The humble. My brother and my sister, a biblical divorce allows for the possibility of a biblical remarriage, but here's the key this morning. Whatever station of life you find yourself in, there is hope, there is grace, there is forgiveness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the church. We are X something or others. What's your sin this morning? How did you used to live before you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Can you give that same hope and mercy and love and grace to non-believers? Maybe you've been through a divorce. You need to repent of some things. Maybe you've been the innocent party, but not the guiltless party. There's no guiltless party, but maybe you've been the innocent party and you need to extend forgiveness. You've held bitterness in your heart for many, many years and you need to go and just say, I want to forgive you. Do you repent of these things? That bitterness and that angst and that, that, those feelings against that person where you desire their worst can be an acid that corrodes your heart. You want to keep short accounts in this life. Be quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. Don't bear the oughts of others. Don't carry that around. It will drive you down. So no matter who you've been and what you've done and who you've done it with, today there is hope and grace and forgiveness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, beloved. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth and the hope of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we all have given license to our sin. We've all looked for a loophole in our behavior. Very rarely it's motivated by love, but more by the lustfulness of our own selfish hearts. But Lord, we want to please you. We want to love you. And so we want to glorify you. You are the Holy One. We are by nature strangers to that holiness. So Lord, I thank you for every person here in worship this morning. I thank you for those listening through the internet. That no matter what they've been through, may they know that there's forgiveness and restoration and hope. This isn't cheap grace. Our sin is so bad that it took Jesus Christ coming in the flesh to conquer our sin and the stain and the defilement thereof. But Lord, we're so grateful that you offer hope. Lord, I pray for the single parents that are listening this morning. Comfort them. Give them wisdom. The single moms, the single dads trying to be both mother and father to their kids. Strengthen them. Encourage them. May they feel loved and may they feel welcome here. And Lord, at the same time, we would ask that we would try to honor you with a life that is not governed by the whims of this generation, but is ordained by a covenant-keeping God. For you, Lord, love your bride. As sinful as we are, as weak as we are, you are forever committed to us as the husband of the church. May we as your bride honor you and respect you and submit to you this week, knowing that one day, either when the bridegroom comes or when we're taken home by death to you, that we will stand in the presence of your glory, blameless and with great joy. Thank you, Lord, for this hope for our families and this hope for our culture as the gospel goes out and changes lives. For it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.